Breaking Banks Asia is brought to you today by Kamakura Co. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> As has been pointed out, when you think of good defense strategies, you try to be aware of all the possibilities, including the unknown unknowns. If your business needs to be certain of the things you think you know, able to get clear answers to the things you don't know, and can quickly discover the important things you didn't even know you didn't know, then you probably need Chris, the Kamakura Risk Information Service. Chris provides real-time intelligence on business conditions across 68 countries, honing from 39,000 probabilities, each with exposures ranging from 30 days to 10 years. And Chris is the leading global service to ensure that you know what you need to know and can anticipate and see around the corner to see some of the things you didn't know you didn't know. If you want to know more, send an email to BBA for Breaking Banks Asia at Kamakuraco, K-A-M-A-K-U-R-A-C-O dot com. BBA at Kamakuraco.com and learn more about Chris and how Kamakura can help you. FinTech, or financial technology, is changing everything about the way we bank to the very concept of money itself. Welcome to Breaking Banks Asia, the podcast dedicated to exploring how this disruption is affecting the Asia-Pacific area. Here is your host, Simon Spencer. Welcome to Breaking Banks. I'm joined here today by Rocky Scopoletti. Um, now, Rocky has had a long and distinguished career working in telecommunications, pioneering some of the conversations around the millennial, and it's a very diverse portfolio. So welcome to the show, Rocky. Um, great to have you on. Thank you, Simon, and great to be part of the program. So I gave you a quick intro there, but uh, do you want to tell, take a moment and maybe um, fill me in on your story? How did you come to be here? I've spent the last 11 years really researching and reporting and commenting on two disruptive forces. The first is really about how demographic change is fundamentally changing the way we think about where our future profits are going to come from, where our future sources of labour are going to come from, uh, which generation is going to be our future policy makers. And here the spotlight has obviously been on, on the millennials, the 18 to now 34-year-olds. But the second part of the research has also concentrated on the disruptiveness of digital technologies. And so my research really looks at the convergence of those two forces. And I've had the pleasure of really reporting and observing that uh, in the financial services and the technological uh, industries. So in many ways, you sort of blend together technology, fintech, telecommunications, maybe with a, a dash of anthropology and, and sort of what humans are doing out there. Yeah, well, these things are inextricably linked. Um, and, you know, as exciting as the technological and emerging technologies can be, we've got to also sort of step back from that and sort of say, well, who wants this stuff? Where is uh, the demand for this coming from? And when we consider that millennials have really sort of grown up, you know, being the most technologically advanced demographic, this helps explain why things such as social media have exploded, why we're now living in a mobile-first world where the mobile devices become the primary gateway 
to the way we think about our lives and why, in fact, the adoption of all of the emerging technologies seem to be exploding right around the world. And that is because that we've got now, en masse, a very, very significant demographic. You know, they make up one in three people in the global population, around two billion people, which is fueling a lot of the demand for these kinds of new and exciting technologies. So demand curves, as we've understood them before in the past, even in sort of some of the early stages of the dot-com era, uh, are now performing much more exponentially than ever before. And, and the implications of this are obviously that traditional models that may have existed for decades could become eroded quite rapidly as this new cohort starts to accumulate wealth and pursue you know their lifestyles and so you know traditional assumptions around internet or even mobile don't necessarily stand up going forward well we're now living technologically in a platform based data intensive capital light you know, technological environment, these platform businesses enable the rapid adoption and scale effect, which we've not seen traditionally before in the past. And we're, we're witnessing this right now with what's going on in China, for example, with Alibaba and Financial, Tencent, WeChat. And that's because there's 500 million uh, people in the Chinese population who are, you know, 18 to 34-year-olds. Uh, And so I think when you sort of accompany, um, you know, this massive demand from a demographic group that has enormous spending power, together with, you know, business models, these exponential platform-based models, you can now sort of see the skyrocketing effect of when these sort of models take off. They tend to take off exponentially now. So we've got to shift away from our linear view of thinking about sort of, you know, the future and and growth onto these sort of exponential-based trajectories. Within that, I think, you know, there's a... There's a tendency for people to sort of stereotype millennials in certain ways and Gen Zs in certain ways and talk about sort of digital natives and non-digital natives and so forth. I think some of those constructs yourself, we must be seeing, we're starting to see a bit more detail as to what millennials really want and what they, you know, what we, you know, some of the assumptions are being perhaps refined. Are you seeing that a bit? Look, absolutely. I think you've really hit on a very, very important question here, Simon. And, and if we sort of step back from that question and just look at it, we simply can't view millennials as being homogenous. And so a lot of the stereotyping, a lot of the typecasting associated with this uh, demographic isn't helpful. And they simply can't be homogenous because there's two billion of them. And what they are now living in uh, enabled through the technologies that they use is a world of personalization. And so their expectations are not to be treated, you know, generically or homogeneously. They know that they can enjoy a high degree of personalization because that's what Amazon, eBay, PayPal, Alibaba, Tencent, WeChat, all of these organizations are serving up to them. So their experiences and their expectations are now being shaped and formed in other parts of the digital world. And they're stepping back now, sort of saying, well, why can't I? I have this level of personalization with my bank. Well, great question, isn't it? It, it is a great question. And, and yeah, you know, I was just jumping in there. And you know, 
when you look at that landscape, it makes it very clear that the banks in every region across Asia, it's a global competition here. You know, that people are playing around with platforms and financial services solutions that may not be coming from their own country. It may not just be, you know, Australian banks or New Zealand banks or Singapore, or you, you easily could become disrupted by a solution that's coming out of China or, or somewhere else in the world. And that agility, that speed to deliver, that innovation, people talk about sort of the world is flat. Well, well, certainly Asia is flat in that sense that you you are you are competing against banks and other um, non-bank players who are across the whole region. Indeed, and what we're now sort of you know seeing with the benefit now of the last five years of very very significant investment in fintech, and you know, the, the results of that, you know, when we think about the you know top one hundred uh, fintechs, we can see. So we can see 10 Australian organisations in that mix. Mm. You know, Prosper, Afterpay, Zip Money. This is a terrific reflection of, I think, the, uh, the you know, entrepreneurship, backfilling, pent-up demand where financial services industry wasn't able to. But, you know, we shouldn't be looking at these two things as though that they are separate. They're, in fact, quite complementary. And, you know, the significant level of venture capital investment that's now going into China, order of 8, $8.8 billion last, uh, last financial year, this will translate into very, very exciting services, uh, you know, through the course of time. I'll give you one great example that I think illustrates this point. Is if we look at TransferWise and look at the problem that they solved and, and look at the founders, you know, the, the, the two founders were two Estonian employees working for Skype uh, when they were located in, in London, in the United Kingdom, and they became frustrated by the cost and the time that it took to transfer the English pound salaries back into their Estonian homeland and into those accounts. That was really the seed of the idea. And they looked at the friction associated with that, the inefficiency associated with that. And what's remarkable about um, TransferWise is that they only began life about six years ago, but they're now reporting their third consecutive quarter of profitable growth. They're now reporting that they've secured a 10% share of the UK uh, cross-border payments uh, and remittance market. Now, when you look at TransferWise and its expansion, it's now expanding into Asia and other geographies. So this is to your point about when these fintechs do take off, their ability to then expand globally uh, and other geographies is, is truly remarkable. An area that must be causing a few banks to, to lose a little bit, little bit of sleep over is, is that very phenomena of how a, a business can come out of almost nowhere and suddenly uh, take a very highly profitable piece of business away from a traditional bank. And you know, when you look at um, technologies around machine learning and artificial intelligence, you'd have to see a, a future where a, a small fintech creates a set of algorithms that help you manage your money more efficiently and then puts that on top of a bank or multiple banks and suddenly you have a very disruptive way for people to become more effective in managing their wealth. And that, that sort of service could be quite explosive in its growth. Um, and you, know, you push it into a Chinese market and suddenly you've got 10 million customers overnight. Indeed. And look, I think open banking, Simon, is really now going to prize open 
entrepreneurship like we've never seen before. And I, I know that a lot of the commentators are in the UK now are sort of saying, well, you know, we've, we've introduced these reforms, but, but, but not much happened. Well, you know, <laughs> let's just wait and see, because I think that is the point here, is that open banking through API technology, I think, will enable a lot more choice by consumers uh, and small businesses and other businesses alike uh, in terms of who their service provider will, in fact, be. And, you know, it really sort of unlocks, I guess, a lot of the intellectual property that the customer had already invested in the data that might reside with a particular institution or a particular bank and unbundles it in terms of, again, who they prefer to have that data augmented with to create new and uh, exciting services. And I think this is really where the step up for banking is, is really all about, Simon. It's about sort of how do banks shift from competing in the product economy to now competing in the experience economy. Very much. And I think you brought together two key points there. The conversation around APIs is intimately connected with the conversation around data. And, you know, the first generation of people who played around with, you know, mashups back in the day when APIs started to become sort of much more popular, you know, they played around with the Google Maps mashup and they endlessly tried to sort of contrive solutions which involved Google Maps and so forth. And, and there were some wonderful demonstrations of using APIs to create interesting mashups. But over time, the conversation moved much beyond that. And so some of those exciting APIs have nothing to do with those sorts of things. And I imagine that we will see similar, you know, yes, people are building some interesting apps using some of the APIs that are around there, but I think it's the ones that are coming that are going to be data-driven, that will be insight-driven, um, where the APIs will be uh, a mashup of, of, of a range of services uh, and where the experience is actually probably the, the, the key focus. And, and some of those new experiences may have very little to do with or, or may be powered by a bank or, or enabled by a bank, but, but they may not even look like a bank app. I go back to a conversation I had with the, the folks at Alipay last year. You know, Alipay, it's it's a financial services play, but it's a lifestyle play first and foremost. Yes, I think that is, uh, is absolutely spot on because financial services, in terms of our expectations, you know, is something that we want embedded within the way we live our lives. You know, it's not something any longer that you go to or access. You want it to be embedded within the way you live your life. Uh, and that's why I think that the large internet players in China have been so successful at traversing, you know, their businesses adjacently into the payments arena and, you know, the spectacular growth associated with mobile payments in um, in China, I think, is, a, is an illustration of that point. But I think also... This is the big opportunity, I think, for banks. And that is because, you know, when it comes to thinking about personal information, of all of the different organisational types that we have in our digital lives, the research indicates that people still trust banks more than they trust any other organisational type when it comes to their personal information. But as much as that might be an advantage for them today, uh, we've got to remember that trust is perishable. Um, and so they've got this window of time, I think, where they can leverage the, the goodwill and the trust that people have in them being custodians of their data 
and, you know, the creation of services that fit into their lifestyles, deliver the experiences that they're looking for, this is where I think we're going to see major back investments yep. uh, over the foreseeable future. And I think that, that you know, if you're if you're in the if you're a chief data officer at any bank, I think the question on your mind would have to be: Should your focus be around how can I use data to drive next best conversations and upsell and cross sell, which has been the traditional bastion of data uh, for analytical marketing, or should I now be starting to use my data to actually find out what the customer is actually trying to achieve and how can I help them? How can I ensure that I can demonstrate that our services are the best in class? How can I use our data to banking is fundamentally an arbitrage business and it's a hedging business. So how can I use data to demonstrate that we're sharing the rewards and and we're doing it the, the smartest way possible? And I think in some cases, many banks have probably got lost a little bit looking at the honeypot of data and going, oh, I can use this to cross-sell and upsell and improve yield and possibly missed a bigger prize, which is I can be more relevant. I can be more differentiated. I can be more effective. And my customers will love me even more. Uh, and then, sure, I'll get to upsell and cross-sell. So if you come back to the point that I made earlier, Simon, about you know, personalization, if you think about the explosiveness upon which we are adopting virtual assistants and augmenting that uh, within the way we live our lives, you know, the, the core ingredient of that is data. Yes, and so this is a massive opportunity to uh, shift from a, what I refer to as a, a reactive use of your data, which is what you were sort of saying before about cross-sell and, uh, and upsell and, and those kinds of things, the flip from the product economy and into the experience economy where though the use of that data becomes predictive. So, for example... Why shouldn't I, through my mobile wallet, you know, when I'm at the point of service, why shouldn't my predictive wallet be able to recommend which credit card I should be using for that particular purchase in that particular store, uh, which might earn me X amount of reward points? So I think, you know, the big step forward into the experience economy is when institutions of all different shapes and sizes start using their data and analytics to provide predictive-based services mm. uh, that are valued by customers in those you know, moments of truth, whether it's making a payment, whether it's considering a, a purchase decision for a car, whether it's you know, trying to make a purchase decision for a home or other things associated with your life. Or you're going into a Harvey Norman or, or a retailer and you're buying a product and the analytics are doing some analysis of whether you should pay for the insurance or not. You know, looking at the, the return rates and, and the probability that this device will get damaged and say it actually makes a valuable recommendation to you saying we think insurance would be useful to you or we don't recommend the insurance package, you know, the, the extra warranty service. Those sorts of smart services easily could be added into a, an intelligent banking you know, wallet, uh, you know, a veneer over your financial services. And so what's held that back when you think about it is the, the limitations that a institution offers in its product portfolio. And this is where I think what Suncorp's doing in terms of its marketplace is actually quite interesting because, you know, when you add the ability to look at a portfolio of different services, some of which might be originated or manufactured by you, uh, or others, I think, is where this is going to go to. And it's that independence that people want 
in the you know products and services that are recommended to them, rather than just those that are limited and associated with the organisation and what it manufactures. It it's certainly um, a landscape now that is much more of an ecosystem. It's much more about you know collaboration with bank, non-bank partners, and it's certainly been interesting to watch you know the engagement by all of the Australian banks and for that matter banks in in Singapore and and, and elsewhere across Asia in how they collaborate with other startups to extend their capabilities and explore new verticals or, or, or new niche markets even. Yeah, and look, I think it's, uh, it's also beyond just startups as well, uh, Simon. I yep. think, you know, you're starting to see organisations that, uh, that are quite complementary. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the examples that I'll, uh, I'll use here is, uh, is Optus Pay. You know, if you look at Optus, it has a mass consumer base and offers a whole variety of, uh, of different mobile as well as uh, fixed-based uh, services. Now, Optus Pay is a, a Visa PayWave app that was issued by Heritage Bank uh, and enables consumers, their consumers, to use either you know, the prepaid app or wristbands or, um, uh, or even a smart cup <laughs> To, uh, to, to make a purchase decision. So I think, you know, it's the ability of organisations to collaborate right across a wide variety of ecosystems where functionalities or, or, or banking functions can be incorporated uh, to complement those, uh, those portfolios. And I think that collaboration, if they get that, uh, that architecture right, because I think it is an architecture, it's a, it's a culture in an organisation, it's an ability to undertake you know, risk assessments effectively, engage effectively with third parties and then spin up new concepts and explore them and, and expand them or shut them down if they're not working. And I think if you get that model right, then I think you've got some of the DNA necessary to compete with, you know, the, the Tencents and the Ant Financials and, and others who are just behemoth. They're executing uh, very effectively on a fintech innovation agenda. And uh, they definitely are uh, the companies to watch at the moment in terms of what they do. And I think if you get that collaboration happening effectively, you potentially can start to uh, create alternatives, stave off some of those risks. And, and, and again, some I think APIs and open banking is really the opportunity this year in the Australian market where institutions, traditional institutions can rethink um, the way and their approach uh, to, uh, to collaboration across a wide variety of different, um, different organisations. So if you look at our, our four major banks as a, as a case in point here, they've got massive consumer markets. Uh, that they serve for, you know, a whole variety of different services such as credit cards and, you know, uh, transaction accounts and mortgages and the like. Uh, but they've also got very significant uh, business banking bases and what sits in between those two customer bases is the bank. Mm. Uh, so they've got an enormous platform upon which they can create mini ecosystems that can serve, you know, both sides of uh, both sides of their customers, uh, and then how they can, in fact, augment using the innovation of fintechs. You know, um, they can bring the scale, they can bring the, the trust, they can bring a whole range of complementary assets to creating new and innovative services for either the fintech, either someone else within their ecosystem, or for themselves. Now, you've spent much of your career or a fair chunk of it at uh, places like Telstra and in the telecommunications industry, but you've, from that perspective, you've then 
worked closely with financial services and and looked across at that industry. There's, it's it's no secret to anybody, you know, that those two industries have got close linkages. And there's been a long conversation around should telcos uh, offer financial services? Should financial services offer some sort of telecommunications integration? What's your thoughts on that? Because obviously around the world, there's been cases where, you know, with Mpesa in Africa and, 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 and Rabobank and various banks around the world and Orange, uh, I think you pushed out an article recently around Orange. Various telcos have played in the banking space and explored that and various banks equally have played in the telco space a little bit with MVNOs and and some sort of mobile offering. What's your thoughts on that? Are those experiments, do you think we'll see more of those or do you think those were sort of something that was uh, explored and they never really went anywhere? Yeah, look, I think there's uh, a lot of great examples um, of where um, mobile and telecommunications services have been able to be, you know, innovated on top of to provide essential banking services. So when we think about financial inclusion, particularly in the developing countries, you know, when we look at Sri Lanka, when we look at, you know, the Philippines, Indonesia, when, in fact, we look at the African subcontinent, you can see that mobile technology has played a integral role in fostering the economic development of a lot of those countries. In the absence of there being financial services infrastructure. So I think at one end of the spectrum, I think the fact that we're now living in a, you know, mobile first world where more people have access to that technology than what they may perhaps have in terms of banks, that infrastructure I think is invaluable to the economic growth of those, those countries. At the other end of the spectrum, in developed markets, which you've got examples such as uh, what Orange has done in France, uh, and I think they, they, they're also deploying in other, in other markets as well. But again, the common area of interest here is the mobile device. Mm. Um, but I think where some of the early banks began thinking that, you know, becoming an MVNO, such as Bank Inter in Spain, uh, I think it was one of the early ones to, in fact, go down that pathway, uh, and that owning, you know, the, the mobile ecosystem was the, you know, was the way to give them strategic advantage. I think they're stepping back from that now mm. because I think they, they clearly understand that you don't have to own the SIM card in order to get the benefit. You know, get the benefit. And so I think a lot of the effort that we're going to now see is going to focus on what you were talking about before, Simon, which is about data infrastructure rather than necessarily physical infrastructure. That's where we'll see a lot more development as the, uh, over the coming years. And, and a lot of the emerging technologies are really what that infrastructure is about, artificial intelligence, uh, for example, with blockchain and distributed ledgers in, in many respects sort of sit within that for the same line of thinking. And certainly for many banks, their telecommunications supplier is often a, a major catalyst for or, or, or partner in their innovation agendas. Many of the most interesting innovations that have been done in banking over the last sort of few decades or the last decade in particular is obviously mobile enabled. Um, and so a lot of those projects have been done with the involvement at some level of either a, a telecommunications provider or in some cases a, a handset provider. I think on that point, if we talk about security, because I think this is where you know the ecosystem yes. is really going to require very strong collaboration, to your point, because it is in the interests of the participants within the 
ecosystem to collaborate on security that reduces the system risk for all participants. And I think, again, if we look at some examples here, just recently Optus had announced an $8 million investment to create a a new advanced security operations centre. It's also invested, uh, I think, about $3.5 million in a new cyber security collaborative centre you know, with the government and academia, I think they're great examples of where you see a common problem being co-invested by you know, big industries mm. such as telecommunications and such as financial services. This is where I think they can put in place the security infrastructure collaboratively that can provide you know, the protection, the uh, trust, the assurity that consumers and and enterprises are going to require them. Yep. And I think, you know, that's, again, takes you back to APIs. You know, the APIs that allow you to have end-to-end uh, traceability, you know, from the handset all the way through so you know exactly how, who is the individual, how was that original, that individual identified, where are they located, what's the transaction, what's the context, you know, is this normal or is this abnormal, being able to profile the uh, transaction and the experience and, and be able to then flag it for potentially investigation or blocking or some sort of action that spans multiple participants in that um, and and it's, it's APIs that allow you to stitch those sorts of capabilities together. I, I think that was some of the sort of the dream around um, banks looking at offering mobile services where they could keep the entire transaction on a network that they had full control over. But I think you're spot on. The need to actually be a telco or, or, or take on all of that baggage of, of the telecommunications side of the business as well as the banking side, it's not there now. You, you you can get the same sorts of capabilities and the same sorts of insights by just partnering with the right providers. If you, if you then sort of look at that and sort of say, well, let's think about supply chain transformation in the use of distributed ledger and blockchain technology. Yep. You know, we've got to avoid making the same mistake. It, it is about collaboration because if you think about the... And again, what you were talking about before in terms of knowing and knowing exactly what has uh, been involved in the manufacturing or, you know, or, or the supply of goods and services. And if you think about paddock to plate, you know, being, having that level of integrity, authenticity and referenceability throughout the whole sort of supply chain, that's the most exciting promises of distributed ledger and blockchain technologies. And then when you start productizing that in terms of thinking about smart contracts and thinking about the efficiency and the productivity that can be achieved through the use of those kinds of technologies in supply chains is truly exciting. But, you know, that's going to take collaboration, isn't it? It's going to take collaboration, including the farmer, the producer, the packer, transport company, the banks, uh, the insurers, because what's happening in the supply chain is the movement of you know, goods and services, the transfer of risk between participants and the settlement of funds. Yes. So all of those things can be done effectively on uh, blockchain and distributed ledger technology. So, so we'll see a set of sort of business fabrics emerge where the question is, is, you know, does the bank's 
do the banks create some of those business fabrics? Do they participate within those business fabrics, or does someone else build them and and, and put someone else at the back end, or, or and, and and all the way through those business fabrics? Because you know it is like a fabric in the sense that you have uh, multiple providers, multiple steps, a range of different technologies, and I think you're spot on with raising blockchain there. Yeah, the use of blockchain in any kind of logistics area. Uh, any kind of area where there's multiple participants and steps and a need for uh, provenance and a need for a clear audit trail and, and the traceability and, and that notion of settlement at each point through the process, you know, those are great blockchain sorts of solutions. And as you've sort of mentioned, you know, the use of smart contracts to add the intelligence and, and then obviously the use of, of machine learning to drive some of those, some of that intelligence underneath the smart contracts. It's a very, very sophisticated business architecture. And the question really is, is, you know, what roles do the banks play? And I think the opportunities there is for some of the banks to actually to lead that movement, to work with partners, uh, work with in telecommunications, in government, in, in freight, in logistics, in, in a range of different industries, and create some of those business fabrics, in many cases tethered to their banking back-end capabilities. Indeed, and they're in a perfect position to be market makers. And why is that the case? Well, the case is, is because they do have farmers who bank with them. They do have processors that bank with them. They do have retailers, logistics companies that bank with them. They do have retailers. And so I think they're in a, a wonderful position. And they have uh, trust and brand. To be the market makers. Exactly, exactly, exactly. They're very well placed, I think, to really spawn a whole new way of thinking about, about the way with which we you know, produce distribute and grow goods and services. What do you think will be, where do you think we'll be at the end of 12 months? Because I think that if the last 12 months we've just seen an explosion of, of hype and debate and, and, and probably, in, in, you, know, the, 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 you know, we are certainly at the Gartner sort of um, peak of inflated uh, expectations in a few areas. Where do you think we'll be by the end of 2018? We can confidently say we should be well and truly underway with real-time payments through the new payments platform. And, you know, we're, we're really commencing the year with that major piece of infrastructure now in its deployment stages. And so I would love to see by the end of this year that we've now got millions of Australians signing up through their preferred bank to use that uh, and leverage that, uh, that infrastructure uh, I think the other area that uh, that we've spoken a lot about, Simon, is obviously directionally, where are we going to go with open banking? You know, so I think we're, we're sort of all eagerly awaiting where the recommendations will land in terms of the design of an open banking regime for for Australia is, uh, is going to take us. And so I think that's going to be sort of quite important in that respect. Um, and thirdly, we're going to see the emergence of the mobile loans or the neobanks, however however people prefer to sort of classify them. It's been wonderful watching uh, Ninja mm-hmm. uh, go through their sort of funding process, but they're not alone. There'll be there'll be others that will emerge. You know, come July when the reforms go through in terms of, of uh, our regulatory settings, we can expect to see um, a lot more of them uh, emerging out now uh, throughout the year. And, and I think there's been an interesting tendency for some of the smaller banks 
to explore um, partnerships with you know some of these neo banks to to try and experiment a little bit you know as ways of yeah you know, perhaps they've got they would they would argue they've got less to lose or, or less to risk but but they've got a, perhaps an ability to be be agile and innovative and experiment uh, sometimes more so than than the larger banks that will be worried more about their existing franchise whereas the smaller banks are more focused on perhaps how do we differentiate and create and grow our business. Um, it's certainly an interesting area. Do you see in banking a sort of perfect storm? You know, the term gets overused a little bit, but you know, we've got open APIs becoming you know, in Europe. We've got you know the use of data, the um, new payments platform, and then you have a strong uh, sentiment out of Australia to drive some sort of royal commission or investigation into banking. And obviously, we also have seen the emergence of RegTech over the last you know a few years as well. Do you see the um, the Royal Commission having a major sort of catalyzing effect, perhaps spur on open banking a little bit, or or um, what's your thoughts on that? You know, I think that market forces and the disruptive nature of fintech is really what's sort of setting the agenda here. Royal Commissions, I think, play a an important part in revisiting the questions, I think, that are critical to the future direction of the industry. But at the end of the day, if you think about, you know, what's been invested in fintech, what we've now seen in terms of uh, disruption, I think that is really what's sort of setting the time timetable and agenda in many respects of, of what we're seeing with disruption. I think adjustments in terms of our regulatory settings and the like, I think it's just a natural process. And I think regulators, uh, particularly here in Australia, uh, for many years now have been, you know, adjusting uh, their uh, services to ensure that they foster innovation and entrepreneurship. And, you know, we've, we're supporting over 500 fintechs in the Australian market now. And, and as I mentioned before, you know, 10 of them are now ranked in the, I think it's the KPMG top global 100. Um, I just wanted to jump back to the, the conversation we had earlier around millennials. And there's obviously some um, very different expectations or, or needs uh, for millennials in particularly areas around home ownership and their expectations around uh, employment and, and the so-called gig economy and, and the tenure that people have, of employment. Do, do you see that as being a, as an important focus of this year where we start to see new types of bank products and services lit up that are relevant specifically to millennials? Yeah, look, I, I would like to think that's the case and that's because the top end of the age demographic of millennials are the 30 to 34-year-olds. Now, statistically speaking, on average, that's when they're entering their third significant life stage, which is the shift from single life into family life. And so millennials in that, uh, you know, in that age category have now become a very significant, you know, mortgage market. Uh, and so uh, I suspect that you're going to see uh, a lot of opportunities uh, for institutions to think creatively about how to address that, uh, you know, that part of the market. Look, deferred home ownership is a, is a very complex area, but I would say stuffing millennials with student debt hasn't helped that. Mm. Um, uh, it's the first generation that's really come through, you know, finishing school stuff, stuffed with debt. 
And so, uh, so you know, we've seen a, a, you know a shift out, uh, a correspondent shift out in their capacity for home ownership, but the desire is still there. And uh, and you know where there is good, you know, uh, a very significant size of market opportunity, you'll, you'll also find innovation and entrepreneurship. Whether that, I think, the question here is whether that is yes. filled through institutions or, in fact, through fintech. I think is the uh, the question of the day. Yes, so I think, and I think my gut says that we'll start to see some of the more creative solutions that are being explored start to be commercialised during this year. You know, some of them are already out there now, but I think that a few of them will start to get real traction over the over the next twelve months. Yeah, indeed, I'm great with that. Well, look, thank you very much for joining me on Breaking Banks Asia. It's been a real pleasure and I look forward to having you back on the show again because I think you're, you're one of, uh, of a few people who, who straddles a number of industries and um, you know, very much value your insights around millennials and, and we haven't even begun to talk about sort of Gen Z and, and, and what they are doing. Oh, look, it's been wonderful to be part of the program. Thanks, Simon. I'd love to come back. Thank you very much. All, all the best. So that's the show for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Um, do subscribe at asia.breakingbanks.com. Follow us on Twitter at bbanksasia. Send me through any feedbacks at simon at breakingbanks.com. If you uh, see somebody doing something interesting, always give them, uh, tell them to, give, to reach out to me. And uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. Bye.